Well, guess what, Mimi? We did. You, Mimi, I'm first. Mimi, I'm first was number third in the voting. I could not believe it. Out of all Do 50 not attack bitches, my fans, bitch. Of the shit that I've seen, you don't have that many. Watching television, watching television. Hello, 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 and welcome to the very first episode of a very special episode, a podcast where I get to curl up on the sofa and talk TV with some of my favourite people. I'm Michael Lee Richardson. I'm a writer for film and television. Uh, I live in Glasgow in Scotland and I love telly. I've been wanting to do a podcast like this for quite a while now. I love I listen to a lot of podcasts about film, things like Things to be Buried With, with Brett Goldstein, You Are Good with Sarah Marshall, and The Evolution of Horror. And I also listen to a lot of podcasts that are about sort of recapping or rewatching beloved TV show. I really love Buffering the Vampire Slayer because I'm a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But I've wanted to do a podcast that was about telly a little bit more broadly for a while now. So in a very special episode, we'll talk really generally about the type of TV that someone likes and then we'll do a deep dive on a favourite episode of one of their favourite shows. So this week my very special guest is Richard P. Flynn who is a writer from Glasgow as well and is one of my real life friends that I spend a lot of time with Uh, so I think you can kind of get a sense of that in the interview. Um, Richard has chosen to talk about an episode of The Simpsons called A Streetcar Named Marge, which I was able to watch here in the UK on Disney+. And I'm advised that that's the best way to watch it uh, in most places in the world. Obviously, in the first part of the of the podcast, when we're talking broadly about TV that Richard likes, we'll there'll be kind of light spoilers for stuff. But in the second half, we're kind of pulling the pin out and and, and it's a spoilerific discussion. So if you've never seen the episode, and, and I'd be quite surprised if there are people who haven't, but if you've not seen the episode or if you've not seen it for a while, I would definitely recommend going and checking it out before listening to this one. Uh, so here we go. Here's Richard Flynn. My very special guest this episode is Richard Flynn. Richard is an award-winning scriptwriter from Glasgow. In addition to writing on BBC Scotland's continuing drama River City, he is currently developing a number of TV pilots and, during lockdown, started writing and performing poetry and spoken word. He's a Simpsons superfan and is currently evolving from Elisa to a Marge. Uh, hello, Richard. Hello, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I know I wrote it myself, but it always... <laughs> It sounds so much better when other people see it. It's nice. I feel like I have this conversation with everyone. It's nice to have your like your your achievements repeated back to you. Yeah, because you always you always feel like a hack when you're writing that stuff and bigging yourself up. But when 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 people say it out loud, other people you go, oh yeah, I did do that stuff. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So I think we'll talk about a little bit about writing for television later on. Mm-hmm. But why don't you tell us, take us back to uh, the past? I don't know, <laughs> and tell us what sort of things you liked watching when you were young. So my kind of earliest kind of memories of telly, like I was the youngest of three boys, uh, t- born in the kind of tail end of the eighties. So I was totally immersed in mainly wrestling, WWF wrestling. Yes, you're the first wrestling queen I've had on here, but I feel like you might be the first of many. Given, oh, okay. Uh, given a lot of our mutual acquaintances, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's uh, yeah talk about wrestling for a little bit. So I, I guess that was kind of my first exposure to. Oh, this is going to sound pretentious, possibly, but it's storytelling, you know, because like it mm-hmm. is, it's like it's part theatre, part kind of melodrama. So I, I was kind of brought up with the wrestling and other sort of very 
um, noisy and loud and colourful 80s things like Transformers. Like, one of my earliest memories is watching the Transformers movie from, like, 80, 70, because my brothers were obsessed with that and would watch it all the time. So I basically got, like, the equivalent of hand-me-down clothes, but, like, hand-me-down viewing experiences, I suppose. And then my era was more Power Rangers was the big thing. So mm. keep keeping mm. up with the campery, and I know I know you're a you're a, you're a Power Rangers. Oh, she's a big Power Ranger, <laughs> <laughs> specifically the pink Power Ranger, who was everything I wanted to be as a child yeah. and as an adult, actually. So yeah, I, I interesting the Transformers thing is quite interesting because I think my version of hand-me-down stuff was He-Man, mm. and like I, I inherited a bunch of He-Man toys from my cousin, yeah, and and watched a bunch of that as a child i don't have a have as much references for transformers i feel like i i I also got random he-man toys in my collection and i think the thing when you kind of inherit toys like that you sometimes don't know what shore they're from or what the character is so you're you kind of have these bizarre sort of figures out of context Uh, we had bucky o'hare as well when i was young love Loved Bucky O'Hare. Is um the the rabbit girl from Bucky mm. O'Hare? Is she a rabbit or a cat? I can't remember. She had like a po- basically she had a um a bubble helmet with an Ariana Grande pink ponytail coming out. Of <laughs> I obviously loved her. <laughs> I can't believe I don't remember that. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to look yeah. her up now. But um, he also had a friend I think called Blinky, who was like a it was a big eye, a robot that was a big eye, who I was a fan of. Yeah, very sort of latent gay vibes from Blinky. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing. I don't think I really got a lot of that gay sort of. Uh, idolation when I was young. I don't. Well, although I was watching wrestling, so obviously I was. Uh, my my. Uh, and this, this will be a deep cut for anyone, and except the other wrestling queens who are coming on this show. But there was a team called the Beverly Brothers who were like they had like blonde mullets, blonde mustaches, and they would come down to the ring with these like big purple capes, and that's why everyone hated them because they were like you know flamboyant men. Yeah, I was completely transfixed by them. Like that is one of my like one of my earliest memories is watching the specific show that was they, they did it in Wembley and it was like a big deal that they were doing such a big show in the UK. And like that's one of my earliest childhood memories. But it's not like you know the all time great match with Bret Hart and the British Bulldog in the main event. I remember the the Beverly Brothers with their their blonde mustaches and mullets. So. What what is it about wrestling? Sorry, this is about to get very philosophical. But why do you like? I think my I don't have any cultural reference for wrestling. I feel like it wasn't. I just it wasn't in, on my radar as a young child. And I do, but it feels a lot camper and a lot soapier than I would have ever given it credit for. Yeah, I think like when we were growing up, it reached kind of big levels of popularity that you know we hadn't seen since the sort of early nineties with Hulk Hogan because we had you know like Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock, and it was all couched in this very like hyper masculine world and these characters who were anti authority and they swore and you know there was women and little bikinis, so it was it was presented as this very macho product, but it was as you say ridiculously camp and ridiculously extravagant. I think I had never um, recognised that wrestling has storylines as as much as it does. Like I, I, I didn't, I didn't realise that they were as pre-planned and sort of. Oh. Uh, pre, uh, well, um, predetermined. The results are predetermined, but those, but those hits, those hits are, are well, well, real, real, realish. I'm going to get <laughs> by wrestlers now. Uh, yeah, there's the, the that's actually my for as much as I enjoy some wrestlers in ring work, 
a lot of it doesn't really grab me. I've got friends who are totally in love with the actual craft of it, you know, whereas for me, it's a lot more to do with the actual ongoing stories. And yeah, there's been everything. There's supernatural folk cutting about. There's like an undead zombie guy. There's like, uh, God, everything you could possibly think of. Wrestling's done it usually about 10 years too late (laughs) after it becomes like a stale reference but that's more to do with the WWE and Vince McMahon than, than, than the product itself. When wrestling is good nowadays it's when it taps into the kind of here and now so like you are starting to see more queer wrestlers cutting through trans, trans wrestlers, non-binary wrestlers and that's particularly kind of punk rock because typically throughout history if you've had a wrestler who is gay or in any way effeminate then that has historically been a reason why you should boo them because they are the because they are not basically straight presenting. So the fact that there are people like Effie and Sonny Kiss and Nyla Rose who are kind of disrupting that is really exciting as a wrestling fan. And this is just turning into a wrestling podcast now, I'm sorry. But yeah, so there's 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 lots of little there's lots of little things going on that are kind of put kicking and dragging and pulling wrestling into the, the current day and, and that's quite exciting. Is there anything else you were watching when you were younger that you'd like to Well I was having a think. So, like, when I was a teenager, I was what? Well, Queerest Folk was huge for me, as it was for or all of us or most of us. Uh, it was the UK one. So, I remember watching, I had a tiny little television in my room, and it would be on Channel 4, whatever time of night it was, post watershed, post watershed, obviously. And it'd be a case of turning the volume down to one on the TV and getting as close as possible so you could hear what was going on without anyone actually realising what you were watching. I feel like that's such a common story, but my version of that is so specifically weird because my mum's like a wee dirty. My mum loves anything that's like, if there's if there would be something in the paper that would be like, oh, you, you won't believe how sort of dirty and sexy this show is. My mum would be straight on to watch it. And I remember watching Queen as folk with my mum and her obviously loving it and me being like obviously massively embarrassed by it because you know it does sort of go it goes yeah, places in yeah. that first I, I can I can think of few things I would like to watch with my family less than the first episode of Queer's Folk. Yeah like for me it wasn't even the you know the, the kind of gratuitousness and the sex and stuff was um you know that was huge to see that on telly but it was more so that I saw you know Canal Street and a gay community and I that was revolutionary to me like I was young uh, I knew I was different and gay but like wasn't out by any means for many many years and that was the first time I saw like oh like other people like the other gay people are friends and they have lives and a community and there are clubs and bars and stuff where they can go to and be themselves and like that was mad. I mean, that's taken for granted nowadays, but like, you know, live out in the suburbs, Glasgow, Catholic school and all that, like that was quite amazing to see. And I think there's such like archetype, like Stuart and Vince and Nathan are such like archetypical characters that you are definitely one of those three in your friendship group, unless you're like, you know, Vince's mum and her old <laughs> gay pal, <laughs> which I think maybe I am at this point, but um. Yeah, like I think you're definitely one of those three characters. Which one are you? Yeah, it was it was Vince. I was Vince. Like, and that, I didn't watch. I didn't start watching Doctor Who for many, many, many years after. But I, I instantly identified with Vince. Even the fact that he was like, you know, he was chasing someone who would never love him the way he loved them. And like at the time, I was too young. I hadn't. I didn't have 
those feelings, but it's kind of weird looking back at the show now and seeing how that I would kind of parrot that mm-hmm. in my own sort of twenty teens and twenties. You know, always going after the, the the putting your energy after the wrong. I say teens and twenties, I still do it nowadays. <laughs> let's be honest. I couldn't possibly comment. On that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was definitely Vince for sure, but I was kind of um, Stuart. Kind of arced me a lot. I think partly it was because he was so brazen, and I couldn't quite fathom mm-hmm. someone being so brazenly gay and I think there was maybe an internalised thing going on there where I found that kind of frustrating and annoying and kind of like uh, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't a fan of him by any means, but I loved Vince. And this moment is 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 we gay, her we gay pal. Speaking of uh, burgeoning homosexuality and things you watched when you were younger, you are the only person I know who's ever mentioned the Denise Van Outen game show Man Oh Man. Man Oh Man, <laughs> as being something which made you feel a feeling. Is that is that correct to assume? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, many feelings were. Were felt watching Man O' oh Man. It's uh, like a blind date thing. Well, I can't remember what the show was about. It was, you'll be surprised to hear, I'm pretty sure it was from the continent, maybe Germany, uh, and it was imported to the UK, and it was kind of like blind date on steroids in that kind of Chippendales era. So there would be a, a, a woman who was looking for a boyfriend, and the contestants would be I don't know how many there was a few of them and throughout the course of the episode she would basically they would basically eliminate the guys who didn't make the cut um and there'd be like a talent round there would be kind of like a pageant I guess mm. Uh, there would be a bit, but a, th- a big part of it that I can remember is that they were basically in trunks or speedos or or, or swimming shorts. Uh, there was a lot of like male, uh, female gaze, and there was a lot of uh, uh, rippling muscles and all that stuff. I, the thing that I really like specifically remember about that show was like I don't know if it was always the same guy or just like a different guy would do it every week, but there was like a very specific bit where a guy would like make his tits dance up and down yeah uh, yeah the peck flexing yes flexing (laughs) not his Uh (laughs) but like yeah just a very specifically weird and 90s thing to do yeah there was there was uh, there was a lot of that going on there was a lot of um, male body stuff going on and what the thing i remember most is like i think it wasn't like i don't think i could be wrong i don't think it was the contestant who eliminated the guys physically i think it was like there was like in my head, it was like two twins. Like I'm picturing the cheeky girls. It wasn't the cheeky girls, but and they would basically walk up and down this line. The guys would be lined up, and whoever was getting eliminated would be pushed backwards into like a pool yeah, of water. Yeah, but they were wearing trunks anyway, so not that big of a deal. And then they were like never seen again. So like you know, like nowadays, if like someone gets put through a trap door and you never see them again. It was like that, but like a really campy version where they get pushed into a giant pool and they just kind of swim away into into nothingness. The 90s was a different time. That was such a weird time. It was. Well, it really was because like I would watch that. I specifically remember watching that and I didn't just watch it. I was like lying on my stomach with my hand in my uh, my head in my hands totally wrapped right in front of the telly with that as you say that burgeoning kind of like oh I, i've got you know I've, i feel i've got a funny feeling in my stomach kind of vibe and my dad was sitting like watching it just laughing his head off at how stupid this show is like with his paper in his hands uh just completely oblivious and probably no i i genuinely don't think he would ever have known why i was so and you know wrapped by this 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 display but you know nowadays obviously i would <laughs> i think i think most parents would be like yeah <laughs> we know what's going on here 
But as you say, the 90s was a very different time. What sort of stuff do you like watching now? What are your go-to genres? See, I'm I'm like, I, I naturally veer towards kind of comedy drama stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot to do with, again, when I was growing up, I watched a lot of stuff with my mum. So like Corey was a constant fixture mm-hmm. in our house. Uh, and then shows like Fat Friends and At Home with the Braithwaite. So like these kind of warm, kind of northern. Fat Friends, that's the first time anyone's brought that up in a long time. And that was such a good show. A fantastic show. It does bear some responsibility because I think it was James Corden's first oh, no. sort of... <laughs> A uh, big, big, big role, uh, but also Ruth Jones, Alison Steadman, like the cast is stellar. Was it like a story of the week thing? That's yeah, it was, and that was the first time I'd ever seen that format, and it's something I really like as a as a structure for a mm. show. Uh, so uh, it was a kind of Weight Watchers group, but uh, and alongside the kind of overarching story, it would dip into a different character every week uh, and follow their specific story and it was funny and sad and everything you you know all in one it was a real kind of schooling and that which we didn't have for a while here in the UK I think but we are starting to get more of now which is that kind of comedy drama and the Braithwaite's uh was the show with Alison Redman I think or she wins the lottery so it's like again it's like very kind of northern sort of comedy drama family normal family putting yeah yes and yeah, so I watched a, I watched a lot of that stuff with my mum, and I think that's kind of set me up well for what I still kind of like to watch and also write. But yeah, definitely comedy drama. I think kind of off kilter stuff, mm. which probably which leads to a lot of sort of animated stuff like we're going to talk about. And I think like that's only been bolstered by the last couple of years, the crazy crazy times we're living mm. in, um, where especially now I kind of turn to that comforting kind of gentle stuff more than the hard-hitting things because I'm struggling to sort of stomach anything that's too grim, you know? What, what sort of gentle stuff are you thinking about? Uh, Ted Lasso comes to mind, which I'm still working my way through. Uh, Shit's Creek is the obvious one as well, but I feel like, kind of like, I feel like Shit's Creek has a similar problem to Rick and Morty, where like the fans are letting the show down by the way they ape and meme it and stuff like yeah. that but then maybe i'm just being a bit snobbish about this i think with that show it took me such a long time to watch it and i think part of that is that it takes a while for those characters to warm up they they're, they're kind of quite abrasive not very nice people to spend time with mm. for that first series but i also felt like when i was watching that show like basically that gays had ripped the ass out of every single joke it, it took me a while to like go oh this is actually funny and not just funny because people like doing moira impressions yeah and like shit squeaks the kind of show where it's not a punchline every minute you know no. it's not a studio sitcom so like when 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 things do cut through and people you know, there is like something that people will repeat and act out and stuff like that they are fairly few and far between in the show it's kind of under the radar sort of show a lot of the way through mm. um so yeah so it's not like you've got a simpsons or you know a, a friends or a south park where people are constantly hitting out with with one-liners i think a lot of the humor is in the performances as well like it's mm-hmm. like alexis's ew david like you can't turn that into a meme but it is funny the more it's repeated on the show i don't know yeah and i think um it's interesting that you said that they're quite horrible people to begin with, but they do soften. And I do wonder, like, part of that must be by design of, Mm. you know, they are softened by their environment, by being in this town. 
But I think it was also a case of just falling in love the the, the writing staff falling in love with the characters as they wrote them. Yes. And maybe a bit of both. I'm not sure. What's your comfort watch then? Like the show or the shows that you keep going back to? Well, like many other people have probably already told you, my main one is Drag Race. Ah, um, do you know what? Nobody has said that so far. Oh, okay. I think I think because this show is what it is. I think people go to I think people go to drama quite quickly because there's more to talk about there. But uh, I'm always obviously interested in reality TV and people's. Uh, reactions to reality TV. Yeah, it's funny because I've always been kind of growing up, I was quite sniffy about reality telly. Like, I loved the first few years of Big Brother Mm. and then I fell away with it uh, from it when I became a very serious sort of emo teenager and uh, never really came back into the fold. But yeah, since watching Drag Race and discovering other reality TV, I've definitely kind of leaned into it more. And I, I get now, I get why why people love um, Tiffany Pollard. I get why people enjoy Gemma Collins because these are people who know how to be characters on reality TV. Well, I think almost like wrestling. I think people maybe who don't like reality TV or who don't watch it think of it as if it's to be taken seriously all the time. But people who watch reality TV know that it's fake and that the people are not necessarily having normal human reactions to things. And that's what we like about it. Yeah. And I, I know, I know many people and family who, you know, they can't stand the sight of Gemma Collins mm. because they just see her as a, an idiot, a total moron. And I'm like, but she knows what she's doing. Mm. She's canny enough. She knows, she knows how to deliver what she needs to deliver. And obviously New York is another brilliant example of that. I think there are people who know how to be on reality tv and obviously drag queens fall into that category as well particularly early on in the show where i think like so i, I tend to only really go back and comfort watch the kind of first five series oh, of drag wow, race that's interesting yeah I, ju- I don't i think it's beyond that i think queens start to have an awareness of how they're going to be perceived by the audience mm. and it becomes a bit safer and a bit more a bit more like the thing that Drag Race set out to do, which was to skewer reality TV, you know, maybe an element of that. So I tend to watch the kind of early, early series of Drag Race, but also like a lot of animated stuff as well. Um, so obviously Futurama, I love Simpsons, I love Futurama uh, and Gravity Falls as well. So like uh, 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 basically things with bright colours <laughs> that don't require a lot of brain space. I, th- I think, you know, bright colours and you know color and noise is a, a legit thing to like and to go back to but i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say particularly something like gravity falls that it doesn't require thinking about because it's that's quite a intricately put together piece of television like were you involved in all of the like sort of puzzles within a puzzle game within a game of the game within a game <laughs> yeah like I'm, i mean i'm doing a disservice there saying that you know it's the it doesn't require a lot of of brain space that's just that's just basically me vegging out in the couch and 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 sitting on my phone while while cartoons are on the telly but yeah gravity falls i kind of came to a bit later i missed out on a lot of the the sort of the puzzle stuff at the time but i love anything like that where you can delve into the lore and they, they create it in such a way that it can be enjoyed on different levels so you can just watch the show and enjoy it or if you really want to dig into you know bill cypher and all the kind of 
other stuff going on there's loads to dig into like you know think of shows like lost and uh twin peaks and things like that although you're not going to get a lot of answers with either of those shows i suppose but i like it when it's more than just a telly show it's it's there's a whole world for for people to really kind of excavate what's something you watch that's sort of outside of your wheelhouse or something people wouldn't expect you to watch i mean we'll go back to reality telly um i'd probably say project runway another one no one has mentioned oh. <laughs> That is a brilliant show. I could do a whole season on Project Runway, but yeah, tell me what you like about it. I feel like that definitely warrants its own show because it is just the most extraordinary television. I'm not, you know me in real life, so you know I'm no, I'm no, by no means a fashionista. Well, I wouldn't want to cast versions, but it's not the, <laughs> not the first thing that comes to mind when I think about it. No, it's not, it's not my kind of true vibe, but I think it's, um, Project Runway is a great example of what good reality telly does, and I can sit there and two episodes in, I'm sitting there tutting, at, oh, I can't believe she's doing that. That pattern is horrible and... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I love how much of a fa- fashionista you become watching Project Runway. Like, I'll be yeah. sitting there in my fucking dressing gown with curry down the front of it, being like, oh my God, I'm such a tramp, what's she doing? <laughs> yeah, and you just channel your inner Tim Gunn of like, hmm, this pattern, this pattern uh, concerns me or whatever it was he famously said. Uh, yeah, I've got no clue. I couldn't. But that uh, that's another facet of it for me is that um, when I remember when I was really into the show, partly I was binging Project Runway because I should have been writing. And there was something about watching these people who like really love something mm. and they love it so much and they work so hard at it. And like for all the shenanigans in that show, like it's a bunch of people in a room who really care about what they do uh, that there was something quite inspiring about that that was quite surprised mm. at how inspired i was you know it cuts through a lot of the noise and was like i think when you when you when you are writing or make creating any kind of creative stuff you can get kind of lost in the noise of opportunities and rejections and motivation and all the rest of it and it's like just to cut you know pair it back to the basics of like but you love doing this so you know get off your arse, stop watching Project Runway and actually do it. <laughs> it's such a powder keg of a show. Like the flip side of watching people being really passionate and really good at what they do is watching them lose their shit for the most ridiculous reasons. Yes. And like there was in it, and that's, again, I can't remember the series, but the one with the crazy twins and one of them, someone took a, someone took a, a tape measure back to the hotel yes. or something. And this was like one of the twins, and this was like the biggest betrayal of everyone's they like, trust. And... They trail that for like the whole season, and it's mm-hmm. really presented as like worse than Hitler, like the worst thing that you could possibly do. <laughs> and and see, I laugh, but if I was one of those contestants, I would be exactly the same. I'd feel so betrayed. Uh, it's like on um, Drag Race Holland season <gasps> yes. two, which is which I've still not finished, but. The queen who had a, had a phone yes. and all that. Like, yes. I'm sorry, but I I would probably be Vanessa in that in that instance of basically saying you're cheating, you're you're against the rules, and you know I'm, I'm very Monica in that respect of you know rules help us organize and control the fun. <laughs> I'm such a. So some... I love this uh, in our friendship. This kind of it's a total two sides of a spectrum because I'm such a chaos goblin that I'm like, that's the best thing that could possibly happen on a show. Somebody could like (laughs) break the rules in a monstrous way. I mean, that's the thing. They're really presented as monstrous. Like 
she brought a phone in so she could talk to her mum. It's not like she was, I don't know, sending messages to it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what she would have been doing. But I think that, yeah, that's one of the most interesting things that can happen. And anything that, that sort is... of disrupts the format of something is fun. Yeah, I mean, I, and totally, and like, I get that. But it, it takes me a lot to get to that place, which we'll come to him and talk about Marge Simpson, for example. But like, I, I, it's a thing I get often in my scripted stuff is like, you know, you need, where's the, the stakes? We need more drama we need more conflict here and i'm so conflict averse that like yeah if i was in a competition scenario and someone took a tape measure back to the hotel i probably would be like how dare you <laughs> but then i'm sitting there with a beer watching people cry about clothes and i think it's the funniest thing ever but i'd be just as bad i think if i was on the other side of the cameras what's an iconic tv moment you go back to again and again so i have two that i always go back to and one is very silly and one's not silly at oh, all i like this so my not silly one is buff from buffy and specifically in becoming part two and it's when you think that angel's got the better of buffy. <gasps> evil angel versus buffy great you know, camp, campy sword fight. Please give him his correct name, Angelus. Angelus, I'm sorry. I apologise to the Buffy stands. So Buffy versus Angelus in a kind of campy sword fight is great fun. And Angelus has the upper hand, has Buffy sort of in a corner, uh, back to the wall. Or, you know, he goes in this kind of diatribe and he says, you know, you've got no, no weapons, no friends, no hope. You know, take all that away and what do you have? And he goes for the killing blow and she, with her eyes closed, grabs the blade between both of her hands and says me and then fucks the butt of the sword between his eyes and she kicks his ass and I can't even remember what happens after that because I tend to just like black out when that happens. He gets sucked into like a weird papier-mâché monster that's behind him for some reason oh. with a really bad special effect but it was the 90s that's that's what we have. <laughs> yeah I just think that's like I mean it is it's a bit hokey and stuff like that but that is such a an important thing for people who struggle with self-esteem and you know mental health like to be like you know what happens if you don't have all these things to depend on but you've still got yourself and like i think when you realize that and when you have that kind of foundation inside you that's such an incredibly powerful powerful mm. thing and i think to get something that kind of profound in a show which again a lot of people were probably sniffy about that time because it was like aimed at a younger audience it was very genre like it's a very powerful show you know mm. and that I, I, I might have i don't know if i mentioned earlier but yeah, like i didn't i didn't grow up with buffy like i didn't start watching buffy and angel until i was well into my 20s you know i had a very delayed sort of exposure to a lot of this stuff but yeah i found that that gives me goosebumps every time i watch it i just think it's absolutely it's incredible so my silly one is uh, we're coming back to drag race <laughs> and it is the, the the best 100 seconds ever recorded on television and it's from all stars one untucked when Mimi I'm first basically gets into a fight with every other queen and I mean what what I think is so fascinating about that is that that whole thing probably took place over about half an hour yes and it's so so meticulously edited into this bizarre psychodrama yes. they don't really and, and nowadays they kind of don't edit as heavily they untuck to the backstage stuff it's more kind of allowed to be sort of natural conversation and maybe a natural argument and maybe slightly more boring yeah but this is so sliced and diced it, it is so heightened and that bit where you know raven says well guess what mimi we did <gasps> and it's 
and the sting of the music and everything. And it's just, you know, Raven has entered the fight and it feels like a boss fight in a, in a video game. And it's just everything that happens in that clip is just absolutely beautiful. It's bonkers. And it's just that, like that whole bit, like Mimi, I'm first. Mimi, I'm first was number third in the number third. Number third. <laughs> number third in the voting. Oh, so good. Everything is And then like, fucking Tammy it's... Brown. Come on, Teletubby, teleport us to Mars. And yeah. Manila and Latrice dressed as Teletubbies. And Manila like, <laughs> reacting to everything anybody says with like mad wide eyes and like looking around. Kind of like a serial killer, but it's edited in such a way that it's just brilliant. And it's like when you look at it, when you look at a lot of um, the kind of drag race fights you kind of go well this is kind of i mean i know she's an arsehole but or she's acting like an arsehole but this is kind of everyone ganging up on one person and it's oh no they all are they all are because the serena cha-cha one is the one that i go back to and that is almost exactly the same uh, i only saw that fully through for the first time quite recently actually and uh, inst- instantly fell in love with coco Montrese in a way that i never had before i've been um, doing drag since 1994 was he even born then oh i fucking love it <laughs> I think anytime time an elder drag queen drags a younger one and calls them like like Tamisha Man saying little boy mm. like if you're if you're like an older queen rinsing a younger one it's always a good time what are you watching right now well like i said earlier I'm, i've been avoiding grim stuff but i am the thing i'm watching just now is squid game on netflix which i have heard about but know absolutely nothing about it's interesting because it seems you know it seems to have come out of nowhere mm. And it's like the number in the UK, like the number one show on Netflix, just kind of through word of mouth. It's a Korean show. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to kind of give kind of comparisons to other things without giving it away. But it's essentially a group of people who are competing in what are ostensibly sort of playground childhood games, but there's a dark twist to it. So, yeah. It's grim, but it also has this sort of, this kind of off-kilter, sort of twisted humour mm. to it as well. And I think that's why I'm able to sort of watch it and enjoy it for what it is. Versus things like, I don't know in the UK if we if we quite have managed to nail that specific flavour. Like if you think about our kind of big sort of domestic dramas, they tend to be very serious and self-serious and very dour. Whereas Squid Game has such a mental sort of... Mm humor undercutting a lot of it so like you're kind of shocked and appalled by what you're seeing but you're also trying not to laugh as well and it's 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 a wild ride so that that's the one I'm, I'm i'm currently sort of in the middle of shall we talk about your very special episode so i have chosen an episode from the fourth series of the simpsons called a streetcar named marge which i have to be honest like i watched the simpsons when it was on and it's something i watched kind of week in week out when it was on bbc two mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I have no real memory of the A plot in but this one. But you, um, you I bet you remember a lot about the B plot. Absolutely. The, the Maggie stuff, the Maggie um, Great Escape stuff, I remember really, like, really profoundly. But also I kind of wonder whether that they repeat that at another point. It feels, I mean, there's only so many things you could do with Maggie because she's a baby, but... It feels like maybe they went back to that well. Yeah, a few I think times. so. Like to be honest, and and maybe this is just me being a bit of a, a hipster and like um, picking an episode that's maybe less obvious. Um, but that's my only kind of weak point with this episode is the Maggie subplot, and it, and it could be that I've just watched the episode so many times, and it could be as you say that you know the Maggie 
uh, being really smart and able and capable and going on hijinks has been done so much. And it, it's more, to be honest, it's probably the, the, the Great Escape music, which is still stuck in my head um, from, from re-watching the episode mm-hmm. earlier today. Like, I feel like that, for a show that was really defined by its kind of skewering and, and parodying and inverting a lot of pop culture references, like, I feel like even in 1992, like, the kind of Great Escape sort of trope was probably already sort of done to death i may be wrong i may be wrong and it is it's cute and it's funny and stuff i just feel like i feel like it's something that they had in the writer's room on the show pinned on their on their board as like a possible b story and they just were waiting for an opportunity to like slot it in somewhere and they finally with this episode had an opportunity Mm. where like the rest of the family were off doing something else so here's maggie on a little adventure uh, but it definitely is like the, the maggie stuff the great escape is definitely more prominent than the streetcar stuff when you said that it you picked an episode that's maybe a little bit less uh known that feels on brand for you i was kind of looking at um just various like top 10 simpsons lists from different spaces and this doesn't feel like it's on any of them no no yeah because it's not one of the you know it's not it's not like a greatest hits episode um i know matt graining Mm. rates it as one of his uh favorites oh interesting Uh, for me it's probably my favorite of the entire show and again there might be an element of you know we've seen the monorail three bajillion times we've seen this and that and a lot of episodes have been done to death but more than anything this is a marge episode that's actually about marge whereas and i'm only kind of this is only kind of bubbling now that i'm saying it out loud but like marge versus the monorail was a great example because she's in the title of the episode but really it's not marge's story i mean i would even argue it's not any one character story it's kind of like springfield as a character is is their story you know the kind of mass frenzy and the mass mania of a, a town full of idiots you know which other shows have done well south park does it well parks and recreation did it well but i think that the simpsons has never been beaten in terms of taking like the community as like a an, an entity of like a hive mind of all these babbling morons you know but this episode i think a lot of marge episodes are kind of marge and homer or marge and bart and it's about their relationship whereas i feel like this one actually puts marge and others do as well but this one puts her firmly in the center and that's especially early on in the show that feels like she was less of that happened less regularly i could be wrong but it feels like early on you know we're talking about the classic series and stuff like that you were less likely to get like a mar a mm. good marge episode or a good lisa episode but i feel like this one just hits hits it perfectly for me what's your relationship with the simpsons and i guess what is a good question is like are you a simpsons fan or are you a nostalgic simpsons fan where are you at i'm, with I'm it? sort of a bit of both uh so I, I grew up watching it again it's one of the kind of early pillars of entertainment and like i remember like my mum being like oh we don't know about this show there's a new show out and you know the the the, the kid in it is uh he's uh he's uh he flunks out he's but he's an f grade student and he's proud of it and you know well we don't know if we should be letting our children watch this you know uh so like i i've, I've basically watched it my entire life I, i'm not up to date with it but i have watched through to i think season 23 um so that alone is more 
of any show than you know any other show that I've ever watched. And like I kind of walk this line between a, a sort of boring sort of oh the first eight seasons or the bit the only ones worth anything. And on the other hand, like there is there are moments of absolute brilliance later on. Like everyone pillories the Lady Gaga episode is like the worst episode of anything ever. I would disagree with that, but I would also say you know it's not great. But like even after that the odd episode has come out that has just been a slice of genius. It's just, it's hard to make anything <laughs> that's been on the air for like 30 years fresh and exciting. And it's got up because it's a product of its time when they do try and update the show, like, Oh, this episode Bart gets a cell phone. It's like, it comes across as very kind of fuddy duddy. Like here's an old show trying to come to terms with new tech and new stories and stuff. So yeah, like I, I I am I would say I am a super fan like I I would say passionately argue that it is the greatest television show that's ever been made and a lot of people would say you're crazy because we've got The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and The Wire but um, I feel like at its best it hits all its markers better than any other show ever has in terms of obviously the comedy and not just uh, written gags but visual gags its own sense of sort of the way it views pop culture because I think for a lot of people it was the first show where it was made by people who also are obsessed with film and TV so you've got a show written by yes. pop culture freaks for pop culture freaks. It also feels like I think what I was surprised about we'll talk about this episode in a minute but what I was surprised about kind of watching this today was that it's the references in it are quite highbrow. Well, I mean, it's about a streetcar. It's about a Tennessee Williams play for a start. And just, and then there's lots, like there's the sort of weird references to Ayn Rand yeah. in the in the Maggie stuff. Like the, the daycare center is called like the Ayn Sco- Rand. School, school for Talks. Yes, School for Talks. And it's like, that is quite specific. And then like, there are some quite highbrow references in this show that was, you know, at the time, I would say, because this is series four, you know, it was Bart Simpson and selling T-shirts and lunchboxes <laughs> with his face on it. Like, to me anyway, and to go back and kind of realise, oh, this is actually maybe a lot smarter than people gave it credit for at the time. Yeah, and I think they would, I think there definitely is that peppered throughout even the early series. It's just rare that it's so condensed, and I think because that is based on a sort of highbrow play, you're you know you're getting a lot more of that in this specific episode. Um, I will say that I, growing up with this episode, I always just assumed that a streetcar named Desire was a musical, <laughs> and so it wasn't until again I was in my twenties and I read the Tennis Williams play, and I was like, this is not what <laughs> the Simpsons presented, and I'm not alone. In that I've seen people comment on YouTube and stuff, you know, saying the same. And I guess we'll get onto that, but like, you know, the songs are all bangers. Like <laughs> I just assumed it was this kind of musical that maybe the Simpsons were parodying or playing up a little bit. I didn't realise that, you know, that is the whole joke, is that they've taken this drama 
and they've made it they've completely missed the point of a lot of it and they're making this kind of happy clappy amdram musical of it which is just absolutely delicious to me i was about to ask i usually ask if we need any context before we go in i think streetcar is probably one of the things we need context for and i have to be honest i only know blanche dubois through gay osmosis i've never <laughs> read the play or seen it or anything so do we need do we need context well i mean maybe a little bit i mean yeah for me it, it's almost like there's gay osmosis and there's simpsons osmosis so a lot of my a lot of my literary and historical knowledge is, is from watching this show right so i was i was in a similar boat for a long time and i just knew that it was this you know this marlon brando ripping the shirt and screaming stella stella in terms of context I think all you really need to know is that play is about Blanche Dubois. She's a sort of fading Southern Belle. She's past her prime in terms of looks and it's also, you know, her mental health is deteriorating and she sort of washes up at her sister's place in the sort of French quarter of New Orleans with news that the old kind of Southern plantation, the family home, the plantation is is gone. And she then immediately has a run in with uh, her sister's husband so so blanche's brother-in-law stanley who in the film is played by marlon brando and it's just about these kind of people just sort of clashing so all you really need to know is that in the in the simpsons episode there's like a horrible uh, excruciating sort of audition scene where nobody gets picked to be blanche but the director of the play sees marge on the phone talking to homer and sees how put upon how trodden overtrodden she is by homer and sees that kind of seed of blanche dubois and casts her in the play so it's basically like a kind of clumsy uh analog of marge and homer and blanche dubois and stanley from streetcar and it's basically it's not the plottiest episode ever it's basically just <laughs> marge is doing a musical and it's a lot it's, fu- it's, it's fun just, it's all emotion it's yeah. like it's all it's sketches mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what's the stuff that you like in this episode well i guess like you said like all the it's all these sketches of of pure emotion you know I, I again it's funny it's something i get notes on a lot in my own writing about there's a lot of emotion here but we need more kind of structure to hang these things on so it's interesting that that's just sort of flagged up to me my thing is marge is a criminally underappreciated character in the show and this i feel like is the the creator's bringing that into the show itself by having her like the episode starts and she's completely ignored by everyone right from the off by the family I, I one of the things that for me really that i liked about it but i found quite surprising watching it now as somebody who watched the simpsons when i was younger and haven't really gone back to it for such a long time was i think sort of the first iteration of the simpsons was about bar and about mm sort of selling t-shirts with Bart's face on it. And then I think Homer sort of replaced Bart yeah, in the yeah. popular imagination. Yep. And I think I think the Homer that we know as a character is kind of quite soft and sort of has had a lot of the edge sanded off. But going back to this like series four episode, Homer is kind of awful and like borderline abusive <laughs> to Marge here. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it, I'm laughing when I say that, but it is quite, it's hard to watch in places for, for what is like a 20 minute cartoon. Yeah. I think they had to, they had to um, get us to a point where we were with Marge on this journey of like, 
and, and, I, and I mentioned it's like a clumsy analog between uh, you know Marlon Brando's character in the film. Like Homer is not as bad as him. He's not actually physically abusive, and he doesn't really gaslight. But he almost does kind of nigger out a little bit, like at, at the start mm. of the episode where they're like, "Oh, you didn't tell us about this play, Marge," and you know the, the kids are like, "Yeah, yeah, mom, we don't know anything about this," and she's literally mentioned that about ten times in that one scene. <laughs> so I think it, especially back then, it was the kind of the elastic nature of the characters is that they kind of they were able to amp up homer's kind of negative qualities as needed to get marge to where they needed her to be but yeah he is kind of awful it is homer's thing does tend to be that he doesn't mean to be awful there are moments in this when he is actually like actively terrible like oh you know i don't care about your little hobbies and stuff like that yes it's horrible (laughs) it's hard to watch what is the relevance of other sort of what is having ned flanders play that stanley character on the complete surface it's just very funny to have the kind of (laughs) the kind of lame christian neighbor be playing this like marlon brando like rugged abusive guy but also there is all there there is there has i think been a sort of undercurrent throughout the show of ned flanders being a much better guy than homer has not escaped marge's sort you know she's not unaware of this that ned god squad aside is like and a model sort of husband and father so i think comparing him having him like act out these roles and go through auditions and stuff like that just highlights again you know ned listens ned is compliant ned is considerate uh he's supportive and he's encouraging and homer is none of that so i think it was probably deliberate just again just to shore up the as opposites and contrasts it also has one of the things i really like about it it goes to this Mind's humour out of the fact that Ned is this stuffy old next door neighbour who, when he takes his shirt off, is absolutely ripped. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love that as a joke. I don't know why. <laughs> so that's like a... They, 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 I don't know if this was the first time. They've, they've pulled that joke out a few times throughout the show where he's like... There's an episode where Homer kind of puts together a dating tape for Ned. This is after his wife dies. Spoiler alert. So that would have been much later on where there's like an, there's an image of Ned in the shower. Like Homer's basically secretly filmed Ned to make this dating video. And there's a shot of Ned in the shower and he's like completely ripped. And then there's like a very, very, very long blurred out section like between his legs, which felt even even at that point felt like quite like uh, risque for the Simpsons because they're basically saying, hey, everyone, Ned's got a massive dick. So, yeah, I, 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 I think this might have been the first time we've really seen him all muscled up. And again, it's just it's just it's a, it's a it's a quick shorthand for ridiculousness. You've got this complete dweeb, uh, this complete milk toast of a guy, but he's absolutely jacked. Is there anything else that you like? I think the Simpsons has form for absolute bangers of songs and i think this mm. is definitely what another example of that like i think every song in this mini musical is genius and it probably goes some way to why myself and others have thought you know in first glance as a kid that this was like a real production that whole sequence where marge is like flying around with all the uh-huh. lasers and stuff i've seen that amdram performance <laughs> i uh, yeah it's it's so specific yeah. and so on point and such a good reference we, we have yeah. all been in a theater with some terrible kind of modern art or some kind of cheap production 
where they try to, you know, the, now we've got the phase of the production where we have all this symbolism uh, and, you know, her flying around. And just the fact that Bart, bless him, is just like, cool, she can fly. You know, like, <laughs> I Again, I have been that person to be like, oh, wow, that's mm. cool. Then someone else is like, no, I think it symbolizes the descent into madness, you know. <laughs> but even just like, you know, opening up with a classic sort of musical opening number of like, we're going to set the scene. This is where we are. Here's a song about New Orleans, but obviously it's completely cutting about <laughs> how terrible mm. New Orleans is to the point where the producers had to apologize for this uh, song because it was offensive. Oh, wow. Uh, so the lyrics for the, the, the song got leaked to the press and I, I, I must have been a, a local paper in New Orleans like printed that out without the context of the wider episode and the, oh, the, yeah the producers had to actually apologize for like causing any offense but they still aired it as it was but yeah that and then like probably my favorite gag of all the and, and within the musical is the fact that Apu's character gets like a like a solo number when he plays the paperboy mm. and like again i kind of took this for granted for years until i actually like read the play and watched the film and stuff because in the play like that paperboy is a complete bit character like he turns up uh blanche dubois kind of on this steep decline and she basically as marge does you know says let me kiss you just once and that's it like she kisses this guy and sends him on his way this wee young guy and he's never seen again and that's the entirety of that character but then in this like you get a freeze frame moment a poo steps forward on the stage and delivers this little like solo number and it's like more you get more backstory in that little joke song than the actual original text gives this completely this complete side character and for some reason that just absolutely cracks me up every time i see it and again it's talking about enjoying things on different levels like it wasn't until i was well into my 20s where i rewatched it after having seen the read the play and seen the film and i was like that's why that's in there that's why there's like a little random apu song in this musical because why would they give a whole number to to the paper boy is there anything else in you? what do you think of the um of the sort of ending of this episode so it's a sitcom i mean it's animated but it's yeah. a sitcom right so status quo must be re-established that's one of the rules of these things like characters can change and evolve but not too much like we have to go back to square one right hmm. so like for me at the end when Things are resolved between Homer and Marge. On one level, I like the bait and switch of, you know, Homer hates this show. Homer's not paying attention to Homer suddenly being like, oh, yeah, like I felt sad about about Blanche. Um, and his, his kind of sudden pivot is enough to bring Marge back into the kind of status quo. But I thought it was interesting that, like, you know, he does say at the very end, you know, I, I'm a bit like that guy as well. But, like, he completely mm. misses the point. So he's like, I'm a bit like him because, you know, the way he picks his teeth or whatever, like he doesn't clock that he is like Stanley because he's like boorish and uh, slobbish and uh, noisy and uncaring. He just thinks it's like all the superficial stuff about the character. So it's as if like he's not reached that full awareness yet. But if he did, then I think, you know, again, we can't have Homer becoming fully self-aware because we need him to go back next week to... Basically, we need to reset. So next week it will go back to... You know, everyone will be underappreciating Marge, and she'll be him mm. tutting and disapproving. And I, th- I think one of the things with that sort of going back to the status quo in mind that's quite nice about this episode and about other 
sort of Marge centric episodes that I like. Like the one where she learns to dance, where she kind of almost has an affair with another man while she's learning to... Uh, there's a bowling episode where she falls in love with... Well, she has a sort of thing with a bowling instructor. Oh, maybe that's what I'm but thinking But they, they do have an elaborate ballroom sequence, so... Yes, that's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Well, it, it's like that she'll, she'll have these kind of moments and then go back to the family, mm-hmm. but you know she's always got these kind of... She's got this life ticking away in the background where she's having these... Yeah, and, and it's very funny, like in one of the Simpsons cl- uh, clip episodes where they, you know, they, they, they just... They all sit in a room and talk about stuff that's already happened and you get a bunch mm. of clips. Uh, they have a they, they do have a great callback to that, but it's, it's about love and uh, Marge sort of we see clips from that episode with the, the affair that almost happened but didn't happen mm. and uh Homer is like freaks out and he says Marge I want you to I want you to promise me you'll stop seeing this Claude or whatever his name is this Claude guy mm. he's like you can take your time let him down easily but it has to stop and she's like okay because like, the reality is this episode happened like in the show like years ago and like Homer thinks it's like an ongoing thing I th- I always find it quite heartwarming when everything's resolved, especially with the Marge and Homer stuff and they get back together. But I do enjoy this kind of... I feel like we're Marge is perceived differently nowadays by fans and by general kind of consumers of the, consumers of the show versus the way she was back then. So, like, when you think about it, there's the, the Marge Simpson manga, which you introduced me to, mm. which sort of imagines this is beautiful artwork and imagines a sort of homerless existence for Marge. And she sort of completely self-actualizes and has sort of, it's hinted that she sort of has a love affair with Manjula and stuff like that. Like, mm, it's, it's beautiful. a completely gorgeous piece of work. And there's there's also like, um, I don't know if I showed you this, but there's a, a drag queen on, on TikTok. I think her name's Rosemary. And uh, she posted like clips of a lip sync performance where she came out dressed as Marge with hair made out of like blue pool noodles. And the first number is like, it's like the Simpsons theme tune and it cuts abruptly to Johnny Cash's version of Heart by Nine Inch Nails. Oh my God. And the guitar starts playing, but instead of Johnny Cash's voice, it's like a Marge impression saying, oh I hurt God. myself today. And, and this queen is lip syncing that. And it's like... And then there's another TikToker who does this amazing impression of Marge and she does like movie quotes. So there's a quote from like The Godfather. Funny, there's like a little Marlon Brando reference there and it's the quote is like, hmm. look look how they massacred my boy. But it's like this this young woman doing it as Marge and I'm not going to do it. I can't do the impression. But like there's something, I, I don't know what it is, but I think that feels like there's something in the air at the moment where like people are, are are appraising Marge in a different light. And I find that really interesting because because of who she is, she's, she's you know, she's sort of trapped in this situation where she could do better. You know, we've had glimpses in other episodes. There's the kind of um, the episode with the neighbour, Ruth, and that ends up, uh, they go on a joyride and it's a bit like, yeah, this is like a Thelma and Louise moment. And a lot of fans have taken that to be like, well, that was like Marge's glimpse of a sort of, queer utopian life with another woman mm. but of course by the end of it she's back with homer and everything is forgiven and on to the next week so yeah i think there's a lot of stuff going on in the kind of periphery of the fandom with marge which is really interesting because she is a character that sort of has been set aside for so long by a lot of people but is to me at least is probably the most interesting 
character in the show. I would agree because I used to I used to really like Lisa episodes, and I think you know I'm always slightly suspicious of anyone who doesn't like Lisa, mm. but. I think it's Marge who is the emotional core of that that family and that show. And I think because of that sense that there is like a sort of deep hurt and pain at the centre of this woman who is just pushing it deeper and deeper down. Like, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm bringing too much to it, but like in, in Marge Simpson anime, she she when she finally lets that pain out it's visualized as like a nuclear bomb going <laughs> off and it like yeah, and, it, and it would be right because it's, especially mm. if you go along with the kind of rules of of a sitcom where she's stuck in a loop at groundhog day almost for like 30 years like of course like if you're going to talk about it in those kind of terms then it would be like a bomb going off but I think like she definitely does repress, and that comes up in other other Marge stories. You know, she represses a lot of stuff. She's also weird as fuck, and like that's mm. my favorite thing is that it's so rare when you get and like it's a classic thing in in comedies. Like I'm thinking about like um, Michael Bluth in Arrested Development, where you've got like the straight man who is sort of above it all, but actually is just as messed up as the rest of them. And like mm. when Mar- Marge's kind of weirdness is so much more sort of. It's so much rarer, but when it rears its head, like there's an episode where like Milhouse loses a couple of his teeth somehow. I can't remember the specifics, but you know, at one point as a sort of button joke on a scene, like Milhouse is at the door knocking, asking for his teeth back, and Marge has them and she still has his teeth. And like someone's like, Why why do you still have Milhouse's teeth? And she just but she keeps hold of it. and then there's yeah. There's just like little glimpses of total mania. <laughs> Is there? So we've talked about the um, the Maggie plot not quite working for you. Is there other stuff you don't like in this episode? Watching it back now, so John Lovitz uh, voices the director of the musical and also his sister who runs the Ayn Rand School for Tots, mm. and it always kind of jars with me now when I when I hear a a John Lovitz character because I feel like he's done quite a few characters over the course of the show. But he's not much, he's not a real kind of chameleon in the way that you know the regular cast. These are all professional voice actors, so they 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 do mm. they they can just they can do all these different accents and stuff like that. John Lovitz, I feel like he kind of does the same thing every time he comes back to the show. So like that mm. at this point, having watched the show as much as I have and reruns as much as I have, it is a bit like we know where we're getting here. I will say to his credit that you know with Llewellyn as him at his best because he gets to be this kind of ham. <laughs> I think we've kind of covered this but what makes this a very special episode for you is there a theme that resonates yeah it's funny again i've, I've talked about um when you come back to a show and you can enjoy it on different levels or different things jump out at you and what i found really interesting was the when marge you know at the end the curtain call of the show and she sees homer and he looks completely bored and then it turns out so she's really dejected from that. And it turns out afterwards, he's like, no, I wasn't bored. I was sad because poor Blanche, blah, 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 blah. And like, I have had that, like, I have gone through that recently doing spoken word stuff, like poetry stuff and open mic where like, I look, out, I looked out to people I knew for like emotional support at one point where I felt I had one of those out of body moments where I was very aware that I was on a stage in front of strangers reading really personal stuff into a microphone and I sort of at those moments was looking for people to like be kind of life rafts for me which probably isn't a healthy behavior but that's another conversation I remember looking at people uh, that I knew who were there and thinking god they hate this as much as like the randoms in this this audience 
And then it wasn't until afterwards we were like, no, like, that's just my face. Like, that's just how I look. I was just <laughs> listening to you speak. Like, I wasn't going to sit there with a big massive grin painted on my face because that would be creepy. And I was like, it's so mad that, you know, this is an episode I come back to all the time. And uh, even now, like, I've got a different take on it <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today thank you thanks for having me where can people find you if you want to be found? <laughs> i don't want to be found i don't want to be perceived <laughs> i don't want anyone to listen to this back i don't want it to be edited together i'm on twitter uh, underscore rp flynn because i still haven't been able to get just rp flynn so it's what does the p stand for oh, i wish i had a really witty thing to say for that but i don't it's, it's my middle name it's paul ah and that's where the interview kind of ended because i sort of got chatting to richard about real life stuff about people you don't know and you won't be interested in uh and then i forgot to say goodbye so goodbye richard p flynn yeah if you like this episode please please give us a like and subscribe and give us a rating over on itunes it really helps to boost the audience and and help people to find the podcast. If you want to have a chat with me about what you heard today, I'm on Twitter at HRFMichael and I'm on Instagram under the same username. I'm Michael Lee Richardson. My very special guest next week will be Sean Kitchener, who's a writer mostly known for writing over 30 episodes of Hollyoaks. So really exciting. Sean chose as his very special episode the seventh episode of series three of Desperate Housewives, which is called Bang. And I had a really, really good time uh, watching that and chatting with him about it. And I was able to watch that episode over on Amazon Prime. So giving Jeff Bezos uh, some much needed cash money for that. But I'm sure you'll find it by whatever means and resources are available to you. And until next time, don't touch those dials. This has been a very special episode. I've been Michael Lee Richardson. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye! Watch it.